I hope you've had a, a wonderful day today. We had a great breakfast already this morning. It did not rain on us. It wasn't that good. And uh, although we probably got woken up early by what seemed like an earthquake last night, um, did seem like that. Some of the kids were telling me that it just strong and seemed like the walls were, were moving. But what, what a wonderful, wonderful morning. I want to address from our time in the Word of God on the first Easter Sunday morning. You know, when you think of that term Easter, uh, all around the world, one finds celebrations of Easter. I read this week that in Belgium, if you happen to live there, people will be busily hiding their loved one's shoes and then taking favors for them in return. That's what they do in Belgium. In Poland, Hungary, and Czech, young people will slosh water on village girls. This is what they do on Easter. In Austria, if you have roots there, they cut brushwood and encourage others to whack each other over the shoulders to wish them good luck. Um, if you're from Ireland today, it will be in that uh, place, Ireland, the, the day that the most money is bet on the biggest horse race of the year. In Italy today, outside the cathedral in Florence, the people will set ablaze an ox cart full of fireworks. In Scandinavia, they will bring out their special seasonal Easter beer. That's what Scandinavia does. If you're from Rio de Janeiro, the hangovers from a, something called Carnival will begin uh, at last to clear their heads right now. You, you know, you look at all that stuff and you say all that is just a little odd. But then you have to remember that in America, people will eat chocolate candy, wear spring clothes, and have Easter egg hunts for the kids. I mean, that's what it looks like around the world. Unfortunately, in many ways, in all regards, its celebration has nothing to do with the true meaning of why we are here this morning. You know, it's interesting as you do a little study, even just the term Easter is not really a Christian term. Now, for you, that might strike you because you think, no, 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 Easter is resurrection. We use that word, but it's not really a Christian term. We can say that it came to mean that, but it is really the name of an ancient Anglo-Saxon goddess of light called Eoyster, okay? And so the Easter celebrations actually even predated Christianity, and the resurrection only later actually became a theme of Easter. There were other ancient Easter rites attached to the worship of the sun and the worship of certain gods of fertility that even predate Christianity as well. In ancient times, the egg was a symbol of fertility and a symbol of the sun because of the color of the oak. You might ask, well, how did the rabbits get into the scene? Well, there's various historical views of how the rabbits got into the scene, but there was one story in Germany about a poor woman living during the time of a famine, and she had managed to get some eggs for her hungry children. And to make it special, she hid them, the eggs, um, in, you know, on Easter. And as the children discovered them in a bush, 
tradition says, a rabbit jumped out and the legend began that the rabbit had brought the eggs to feed the hungry children and that was where the Easter bunny was born. I mean, you can go on and read all this stuff and it really has nothing to do of why we're here this morning. In fact, one source said this is the mishmash of Easter rabbits and eggs and hats and new dresses, fertility rites, spring celebrations, pagan festivals, festivals, special beer, horse races, throwing water on each other, whacking people with shrubs and on and on it goes. And somewhere in the middle of all that, Jesus rose from the dead. He really did. And so for us this morning, it takes on a a, a far greater meaning. That stuff, you just think it just somewhere gets passed. But for us, it's the day that the Lord Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And I want to bring you this morning to, to really one of the most personal accounts, I really believe, in all of the scripture on Christ's resurrection from the dead. It is the appearance of Jesus Christ to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. And so I invite you to take that Bible and open it to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And I want to look at, I've titled the message, The First Easter Morning, for it was, and this account to Mary Magdalene. Now, as we pull into the account in John chapter 20, we'll exposit as we do each week from verses 11 to 18. But before we exposit those verses in 11 through 18, recognize that once we get to verse 11, the stone has been rolled away. I'll come back to that. The tomb was empty. The grave clothes from that first Easter are inside the, the tomb, if you will, in John chapter 20. The testimony of the angels has already been given to Peter and to John. Mary Magdalene comes back now, in verse 11, to the grave site. Now, if I call her Mary, you understand that I'm referring this morning to Mary Magdalene. If I say Mary, I'm not meaning the Mary, the mother of our Lord, but Mary Magdalene. You say, well, what does that mean on her last name? Magdalene is just simply the place of her birth. That's where she was born. Her name was Mary, and she happened to be from Magdalene. That's how she's called that name. It was actually a thriving town at the time of Christ, and it's actually over on the coast of Galilee. Now, I want to just make a little reference point here as we address this passage with Mary Magdalene, that this is not the woman who was a prostitute in Luke chapter 7. Some have thought that. That's not this woman. This is not Mary, understand, in the other part of Scripture, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That's not this Mary. This Mary is Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdalene. Now, by way of introduction, let me just establish a few things, maybe just four crucial items of importance regarding the background of Mary Magdalene and our Lord's appearance to her on that first Easter Sunday morning. Number one, just as we walk into this text and we're reflecting on it, Mary Magdalene is the one who actually had seven demons cast out of her. Not one demon, not two demon, not three demon, but this is the woman, according to Luke chapter 8, Luke 8, 2, who had seven demons cast 
out of her. I mean, it, she, think about that. Think about being dominated by those things. I mean, you heard Tom and Josie's testimony today of what it was like to grow up and be dead and moving towards destruction. Add on top of that if you had seven demonic spirits living in you. And so she got saved. And after that point, her whole life was Christ. If you asked me, what, what do I know about Mary Magdalene? I would just say, bottom line, put it right on the table. This was a woman who absolutely loved Jesus Christ. I mean, the one who was dominated and the one who was controlled by Satan is now a fully devoted follower of Christ. I mean, just if you thought about just that thought for a second of her demons, can you imagine how grateful and endeared she was to Jesus Christ? I mean, I couldn't help but think as I heard Tom and Josie's testimony, they have more joy than some of the kids who have grown up in the life of the church their whole life. And, and, and you know that little phrase that comes out in the gospel that she loved much because she was what? Forgiven much? That's Mary Magdalene, a fully devoted follower of Christ. Secondly, I want you to note this, just as we touch going forward. It was Mary Magdalene who was with Mary the mother of our Lord at the foot of the cross. In fact, let me just show you. Look back one chapter and just give you a little background. It's not hard to see this in John chapter 19 in verse 25. As Jesus was being crucified, it says in 1925, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary, there it is. Magdalene. You say, well, Scott, that, you say, okay, she's there at the foot of the cross. Well, I actually think that's remarkable because none of the disciples are there. They all fled except one, John the Apostle, okay? But all the other disciples who followed him for three years weren't there at the cross. You remember they deserted him right prior to the trial, they had all left after, you know, before his arrest in the garden, at his arrest, and they fled out of fear for their lives. But I want you to know this, not Mary Magdalene. See, her love for the Lord was much greater than her fear. And she who was forgiven much loved much. Thirdly, just note this. Not only was she at the foot of the cross, but thirdly, it was Mary Magdalene who remained with Christ after his death to see where he would be buried. In fact, you don't have to go there, but when you put the gospel accounts together, um, at least in Mark, she was with a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea when they laid Jesus Christ into the tomb, Mark fifteen forty seven. I mean, she just couldn't leave him, even in his death. And then I just say, fourthly, note this, that, and maybe here's the most touching thing, is our Lord first appeared to Mary Magdalene. He said, who saw her first? Who saw Jesus first? This Mary. And, and I can't tell you exactly why I know that is, but I'm telling you, I think Jesus Christ awarded this woman her faithfulness because she was such a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. She was an incredible woman and the first woman to actually see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, why that is striking to me is that I don't think no Jewish author would have ever invented that story. They would have made men probably the preeminent ones, but that's not what happened. It was this woman who saw the Lord Jesus Christ first. She witnessed the single greatest event in world history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. She is the first eyewitness, as I just mentioned, and you would be hard-pressed in all of the Scripture to find a woman who is more devoted to the Lord than Mary. And so as you look back, she had seven demons cast out of her. She was at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ when he's being crucified. She's at the burial tomb as they laid him in the tomb. And then she's there that first Easter morning that Jesus rose from the dead. You say, what happened on that first Easter morning? Let's look back at the appearance of our Lord to Mary Magdalene. And I want to look at it with you through four exchanges that demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the living Lord raised from the dead. There's four exchanges, and maybe just for the sake of ease, I'll just designate those exchanges just with one simple word, but in all those exchanges, there's a key person behind it. And I believe there's a key message even for us this morning, okay? But let's look first at lamentation. We'll make that our first word, lamentation. It is just a cry of sorrow and grief, okay? Lamentation. Pick up the text with me. Look at verse 11. It said, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, uh, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, you remember that she was there earlier that morning. Very interesting. Back up to John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, this is interesting. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon and Peter and the other disciple and the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. I mean, maybe as Mary gets to the tomb early that morning, you can see in verse 1, it's still dark. So maybe she in her mind was thinking that his enemies have murdered him, and now they have stolen his body. And you'll note that when she came that morning, she wasn't alone. Look back at verse 2 again. It says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And you'll note she says in verse 2, and we... Do not know where they have laid him. Mary and other women came, we think, maybe to bring spices to anoint Jesus early that morning, according to Mark 16.1. I think, again, it just reveals her heart that Mary Magdalene, as well as the other women, wanted to show their love for Christ by finishing his burial preparation. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had been forced by the coming Sabbath to prepare his body for a grave quickly. And I think these women, maybe just in 20, verse 1 and 2, came back to finish the job. They will tell us that in Jewish custom, when they begin to prepare these bodies for death, they will put spices on the body. And often when they begin to wipe that body and put those spices before they place that body 
into the tomb that sometimes it could be as much as 65 pounds of spices because the Jewish people regarded uh, with a hatred any disrespect to a corpse. And so she did not want the body to be violated. And as she comes to the tomb that morning, you see it in verse 1, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she goes back, does she not, in verse 3, and begins to tell Peter, and she begins to tell John, and they run out of the room where she had left from the tomb to go tell him, and they run out of the room, and you get from the text, there's like a, a sprint to the, to the tomb. Look what happened in verse 4. It says, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's John, right? And John's probably a little bit more shy. This is his gospel. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then here's Peter, verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in, and he saw and believed and for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must raise, rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And so there's the picture. She's at the tomb that morning. It's, it, the stones rolled away. She goes back to the disciples. Those two run. They're in a foot sprint, you know, foot race back to the tomb. John gets there first. He looks in. He, he looks into the tomb. Peter, as maybe his personality would be, doesn't stop to look in. He runs right into the, the tomb itself. Well, then they come back. And then Mary, look at now verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. She then must have come back, presumably, to the same spot to grieve. And as she comes back, she's alone. I, I think in her heart, if you can crawl into it, she just never wanted to leave the gravesite. In fact, look at verse 11. It says that Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. Now, when you read that and I read that, I think she's weeping like... Just weeping. But, but the Greek word here is that when she's weeping, she is in, the word just means an uncontrolled sobbing. It, it, the, the idea here is it's not just that tears filled her eyes, but that she is weeping profusely is the thought. I mean, her sorrow, her lamentation was the personal loss of losing Jesus to death. But now it is compounded by the fact that the body had disappeared and maybe Mary had thought somebody stole that body. See, for Mary Magdalene, life had lost its meaning and purpose when Jesus died. She lost the object of her affection. And when Jesus died, she in effect died. I mean, the irony here, as we know now, is that Mary is weeping uncontrollably because the tomb was empty, and yet it's the very empty tomb which should be the cause of rejoicing, right? And so while she's weeping, look back at the text in verse 11. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other 
at the feet. And I take you from lamentation, secondly here, to confirmation. It's the confirmation of the angels. All four Gospels speak of the angels' appearance in the tomb. The angels, if you look back in Scripture, they're present at his birth announcement. The angels are present at his birth itself. And now they're present at the resurrection from the grave. You say, well, what did the angels say? Look at the text, verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. It's the same as verse 2. But I think just such gentleness here by our God that these angels, ministers of Christ, draw out Mary from her despair. It's as though the angels are saying, is there a reason for those tears? And Mary says here, how can I not weep? Look at it again. How can I not weep? It says there in 13, they have taken away, look what she says, my Lord. I don't want to make a big deal, but if you go back to verse 2, she said to Simon and you know Peter and to John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. But now as you come down to verse 13, they have taken my Lord. And I think again, it's just the depth of Mary's affection for the Lord. I mean, I don't know where the disciples are. I'm just being honest with you. Not this woman. Such love, such devotion. Let me ask you, women, do you have that kind of heart? I mean, this is, when I read this, I just say, man, I, I, I wonder where I would have been during this thing. Not Mary. You couldn't deter. I mean, you could not. She followed Christ in ministry. Some women paid for his itinerant ministry. Then when he's crucified, she's at the foot of the cross with Mary, the mother of our Lord. Then when Joseph of Arimathea puts, her, puts him in the tomb, she's there in the tomb. And now before anybody's up, before the sun comes up, she's back here at the gravesite. And now she just wants to ask the, the angels, where have you, where has my Lord been laid? Now, you'll note, and I read it as well, that she's not startled by the angels. In fact, I would say to you, there's no evidence that she actually knew they were angels. Mary speaks to the angels and says, if only I had knew where they had laid him, I she in essence says, could carry out the very reason that I came here for this morning. I mean, she is just profoundly grieving over his death. He said, well, then why were these angels here? Well, these messengers from heaven are confirmation to Mary that the empty tomb is not the work of robbers. It is the work of Almighty God. You say, well, what happened next? Look at the text in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around. Remember, this is the first appearance. And saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. So I bring you from lamentation to confirmation. Thirdly, to, to revelation. She did not know that it was Jesus. And now there's volumes and scholars who write volumes on this very question, uh, how could he not? How could she not know? I mean, you read it right there. She did not know it was Jesus. 
Some would say that she was just so blinded by her tears that as she turned around on that first Easter, uh, maybe she was just blinded and she was bleary-eyed and she couldn't recognize him. Others say that she turned around to see him and um, it was too dark. She came early in the morning, maybe so early that by the time they ran back, then came back to the gravesite, it's still dark. And when she turned around, she didn't recognize Jesus. Some actually say the reason that she didn't recognize Jesus is because of a lack of faith, that he only reveals himself to those who have faith. No, I think all of those answers are wrong. What you have in the scripture is this, is that there is always ignorance of his person until the Lord brings divine revelation. This is what you find. Until he opens eyes, she did not know who it was. You say, well, that's striking. Well, you remember in the other gospel account, you have two disciples, remember that, on the road to Emmaus? And it says very clearly in Luke 24 that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So we say, well, how could those two disciples, as they're walking, not know that it was Jesus? And they're saying, did you not hear what happened? Well, it's very clear. It's because it says in the scripture in Luke 24 that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. That's what the scripture says. Then later in Luke 24, 31, then it says that after he departed, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. This is how it is. So she needed a revelation, did she not? In fact, this is not just new to Mary Magdalene. Look over just to the next chapter in chapter 21 of John. It says that, and this is post-resurrection here, right? We understand that. We read that at breakfast. But it said in 21.1, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. And this is the language that the Scripture gives, that he revealed himself. But look at this one in John 21.4, that just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore... Yet the disciples did not know that it was who? Jesus. You say, well, maybe they just couldn't see. They're out there and uh, they're fishing. And they, no, I don't think so. I think he didn't reveal himself to them at that point. You say, well, how do we put this together? I think Mark in his gospel is very, very, very helpful when he notes that our Lord's appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Mark 16, 12, was in a, he uses this word, a different form. So listen, as Mary's crying there, as she's weeping, as she's lamenting, and as the angels are there confirming she's not getting it until this divine revelation will come. And that's the teaching of Scripture. There must be revelation by God to see him for who he really is. That's why verse 15 says what it does. Look there. Jesus said to her, woman, so gracious, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be what? The gardener. I mean, they're there at the tomb. And as she turns around, he thinks, she thinks that he's the gardener. Look what she says to him in 15. Sir, if you have carried him away, check her heart on this. Tell me where you have laid him, 
and I will take him away. She turns, it's Jesus, thinking he's the gardener, and says to him, do you know where he is? I will take him away. In other words, out of the heart of this woman is this. She's going to do it all by herself. She's going to somehow pick up that body, whatever that body weight would be, three days later, right? With 65 pounds of nard or all the stuff that they, the spices they would. And you, you just tell me, sir, and I'll take them away all by myself. Listen, I'm stunned by this woman's devotion. Stunned. And I would only pray, God, give us women like that at Grace Church of the Valley. Give us men in that sense who have that kind of passion. Sir, if you tell me, I'll just take them away all by myself. And Jesus so tenderly comes to Mary. He comes to her to bind up the brokenhearted. Why? Because our Savior knew that Mary's heart was broken, that her thinking was cluttered, but he does not rebuke her. He just graciously reveals himself to her. And all he had to do was say just one word. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. There it is. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Isn't that precious? Just Would you just love to have been there? Just one little word, Mary. And it transformed all of her sorrows into joy. It turned her weeping into exhilaration. And before her was not just the body of Jesus who was laid somewhere, but she is in this encounter face to face with the living Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't take anything more than calling of her name the way that Jesus used to speak to her in tenderness and warmth in a tone and just like in the former days. One word, just one word, so full of meaning, crushed her faith and it turned it into joy. And the one who had years earlier had commanded the demons out of her now just with one word calls her name. Can you just imagine the love just at that moment that engulfed Mary's heart when she heard her name called. I mean, the weeper becomes the worshiper and her tears turned into triumph and her sorrow turned into joy. I think she becomes just the picture of John 16. Do you remember that? Look back there just for a second. Look back, just four chapters. John chapter 16, love this phrase. Do you remember when Jesus was ministering in his earthly life and he began to prepare the disciples that he would go. And he said in John chapter 16, in verse 16, he said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And in a little while you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me and because I am going to my father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Now watch this. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will will see me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I think that's the picture here. The shepherd, the good shepherd, merely called her name and the sheep heard and joyfully came to the good shepherd. Does it not make you, does it not just remind you of John chapter 10? Remember that familiar refrain when Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out and the sheep follow him because they know his what? They know his voice. I mean, I think right here in John 20, as you turn back, it must be one of the greatest revelation scenes in all of the Bible. And I believe our Lord rewarded this woman with his first appearance for her devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, it's all grace. Maybe we'll find out it's a little different and this was just the path that he chose. But I'm telling you that he revealed himself not to the disciples, not to the crowd of 70. He revealed himself to Mary Magdalene, who was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So here's her lamentation. Then there's the confirmation of the angels. Then there's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it leads to a, just a final exchange here. I'll just call it the exhortation. The exhortation. Look at it in verse 17. It says now, back in John 20, Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Now, it doesn't say here the other Gospels fill it out. It's When he says, stop clinging to me, it, you almost get the picture that as she turned and he said to her, Mary, that instantly she just went to his feet. Maybe she just seized him is the thought. It's the ideal of clinging to him and she fell before him. And I think, I think maybe in Mary's mind, he had left her once and now she's just not going to let him go again. I just think that was her instant, total response of worship. And I think Jesus could see and read Mary's intention and desire to hold on tightly. And Jesus needed to let her know that she could not forever keep grasping him. And so he wasn't rude. He was just ever so kind. He says, do not cling to me. And the reason is, you can see it there in verse 17, I've not yet ascended to my father. In other words, the Lord gives her, I believe, a new relationship. The Lord gave to her, secondly, new relatives. And then thirdly, he gives her a new responsibility. But listen, I, I don't even just think this exhortation was to her. Mary's lamentation was her sorrow. The confirmation was to Mary right there. Then the revelation was to Mary. But I have to believe this exhortation is not just to her, but it's to, to us also. And Jesus wanted to instruct Mary and he wants to instruct us that post-resurrection, there's a new relationship. 
Post-resurrection, there's new relatives. And post-resurrection, there's a new responsibility. And so it is with us. And he exhorts her, does he not? That he has not yet ascended to heaven. That he still had post-resurrection work to do. You remember from the Gospels and from the book of Acts that Jesus remained on earth for how many days? 40 days, right? After his resurrection, appearing to many of his followers, Acts chapter 1. In fact, 1 Corinthians said that he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses who beheld the living Lord Jesus Christ. But understand, first he appeared to who? Mary Magdalene. But I think as she goes down, she's clinging to him. I let go of you once. I'm not going to let go of you again. Jesus said, I have to ascend, and here's the new relationship, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In other words, there's such an intimate new relationship that we share with our risen Lord. And I think Jesus wanted to just help Mary in this exhortation to say that the relationship will change. You will no longer have me physically present when I ascend to my Father, my God, and your God. The relationship's going to change because as he ascends, who did he give to us? He gives to us the Holy Spirit. And so praise God that he did because Christ could only be at one place at one time when he was in his earthly itinerant ministry. But now we know that Jesus said, lo, I am with you. What? Always. And so this relationship changed. It's a new relationship, one that we have with Christ and with the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's a little bit what Josie was saying in her testimony. Oh, no, I was sad and there were tears. But she knew God at that point. She knew God. And he had never left you, never departed from you. He was right there with you. And so Jesus says, go and tell. Look what he says there. Go back to verse 17. He says, but go tell my, what? Brothers, okay? There's new relatives. Say, well, what's so significant about that? That's the first time it's ever mentioned. Say it is? Yeah, it's the first time it's ever mentioned. He tells Mary, listen, we've got a new relationship. I'm going to send to my father. Lo, I'm with you always, but I'm going to send you the paraclete. But not only that, Mary, you now have new relatives. And now he begins to move into that term of calling us the family of God. He said, go tell the brothers. Now, in other places, he's called them servants. And in other places in the gospel, he called them friends. This is the first time he said, go tell the brethren or go tell the brothers. In other words, we're part of God's family by virtue of his resurrection. We now have new relatives, and I would say that to us as a church family. We are part of the family of God, and you may have family that's close, but listen, you're part of God's family, and it could be that as you go to family today, you might not be with people who are in Christ amongst your own family, but when you're in the body of Christ, we're now called the family of God. And again, it's the first time he addressed the disciples as brethren. Listen, because of our Lord's death and because of our Lord's resurrection, we share in his sonship with the Father. So Josie, in a very practical way, as you had to have that difficult day of walking away from your family, that very day you entered into another family, didn't you? 
And now you have another family that loves you and embraces you. And that's the truth here of the Scripture. We are part of God's family. We are, the Scriptures say, in Christ. We are His family. We are identified as His children. And we enter into that relationship through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, you have not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear again. But you have received, Paul said, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, what? Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And Paul said, if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So he says to Mary, listen, there's a new relationship. There's new relatives. And he actually says, listen, Mary, stop clinging to me because here's why. You've got a new responsibility. Because watch this, the missionary actually becomes, or the mourner becomes a missionary. Look what, look what he says to her in verse 17. He says, but go to my brothers. And he says, and say to them, I am sending to my father, you know, and to your father and to my God and your God. Listen, she's got a new responsibility she was to witness. And so here it is, she becomes that. Because look at the closing verse in verse 18. Mary Magdalene, I love this, went. In other words, she was obedient. And she announced to the disciples, I have seen, what? The Lord. And that he had said these things to her. I love that phrase. Imagine her coming back now a second time and saying, I have seen the Lord. I mean, here is for us an eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mary Magdalene says, I have seen the Lord. What joy. You say, well, she went back. And it says, verse 18, she announced to the disciples that I have seen the Lord. You said, well, how did the disciples respond to that testimony? Well, to be honest with you, not very good. Not very good. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I'll show you. Look back at Mark. I'll show you. Go to Mark 16. So she went back. She, she, the, the, the mourner became a missionary, okay? And I'm just being honest with the text. And eventually they got it, but... But this is what happened at the beginning. Um, let me see if I can find it in Mark chapter um, 16. I have it in verse 10. Now, when he had rose early on the first day, look at Mark 16, 9. He appeared first, there it is, to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and what? Wept. She goes back and she's like, guys, are you crazy? Guys, what are you doing? I, I went to the tomb, and no, it's empty, and the grave clothes were inside. But listen, I turned, and he appeared, and I have seen the Lord. And you can imagine her running back with joy, then telling the disciples, and she enters that room, and you can read it in verse 10, as they mourned and wept, but when, here's the key, 1611, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not, what? Believe it. They refused to believe it. Now listen, eventually we know, I know, you know that they did. But here's the point. 
the mourner had become a missionary. Listen, what are you doing right now with your faith? That's what I'm asking. She obeyed. She obeyed. What What are we collectively doing as a church as it relates to the Great Commission? Because Jesus basically said to her, and he'd say to us, I've given you a new relationship, I've given you new relatives, and I've given you a new responsibility. But whatever you do, don't be content. Whatever you do, if you've been sitting in the church for years and you've not shared your faith, then get on your knees this afternoon. Because people are dying and going to hell in boatloads right around us. And this woman was confronted that I've seen the Lord and she went back and told him and that mourner became a missionary. Listen, one moment, she's weeping. The next moment, at the call of her name, all of her life changed and she's not looking for the Lord. Where had they lain him? But I have seen the Lord and no longer, praise God, was she looking for a body to prepare. She's now proclaiming the life of her living Lord to others. And at least initially, they didn't believe. And maybe some that you share with don't initially believe. And I guess Tom and Josie, they weren't too happy when you first shared, were they either? But you keep going. Jesus said, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. Stop beholding me. I'm going to ascend. And as I ascend, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And then we are to take out this commission, are we not? And you'd say, well, are we doing it here? We're doing okay. We're doing okay. We've lost some speed in some areas in terms of where we're going. But listen, we got to pick it up, right? Because all I know is Jesus said to you, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says, in heaven and earth. And here's what he would say to you and to I. Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the what? End of the age. He's with us and we need to go. I mean, the message this morning is very easy, beloved. He is risen, right? Amen. The tomb is not merely empty. Our Lord has risen from the dead. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And you and I have but one exhortation, and that's to go and tell. And I pray that we would. I pray that we would. I pray that that would be our passion. I pray that we'd strategize and devise how we can share this precious message with other people. Now listen, if you're here and you're a guest today, we're so glad you've come to breakfast and maybe even to this service if you're hearing my voice. You you say, well, why do we have the Scripture? Well, I, I can tell you, listen, all that we find in the Scripture would go to one purpose. All that we find in John's Gospel goes to one purpose. All that we find here is revealed to us by John the Apostle under the inspiration of the Spirit of God for one purpose. I suppose there's many offshoots to that. You say, well, what's that purpose? Well, John wrote it right in his gospel. In fact, he wrote it right in the same chapter. Remember, look there. Remember this in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs. Many, many, so many in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may 
that you may believe, right, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote it. That's why he put it in the scripture. He put it in the scripture to reveal to you the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so listen, here's the eyewitness testimony of Mary Magdalene. Here's the eyewitness testimony of all the apostles. This is the testimony of the early church in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was seen by over 500 brethren in different settings in different places. And all of this goes for this expressed purpose right there that you can see that you may believe that Jesus, that's his human name, okay? that you may believe that Jesus, as it says there, is the Christ, that he's the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's deity. And that believing you may, I love that little phrase, have life in his name. Listen, eternal life, when you look at it in the Scripture, isn't just talking about a duration of time at at the end of our life. Eternal life, you know this in Scripture, talks about a quality of life that we experience now with Christ. He wants to give you that life, but that life only happens through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd open your heart to that. I pray, listen, dear church family, that we'd be about our business, amen? That we'd tell others the greatest message there is. That we'd tell others the greatest news. You say, well, Scott, I'd like to have that heart of Mary, then pray. Pray, be that woman. What if we had just grandmas who were just like Mary Magdalene? Then we had young mamas growing up that were like Mary Magdalene. Then we had a set of junior high girls and high school girls who just were so devoted to the Savior like that. I think the Lord would transform our church. And I would say, may it be that our men become strong men who are that devoted to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.